Good morning, Summerbrook. My name is Mary Treffin. It is my honor to get to share with you today. One year ago today, my husband and I were in a doctor's office uh, where an ultrasound confirmed that we were, in fact, having a miscarriage of the baby we were very excited to have. And as I'm sure you can imagine, that was not what we had planned. We left, we were in the car, and I, I'm talking to my husband, and I decide that in order to deal with everything going on, I'm going to try and make the day as normal as possible. So I was actually talking about the board games we might play later when Tanner looked over at me, and he said, Mary, I want it to be okay to be sad right now. And when he said that, two different things happened. Number one, I realized I wasn't going through it alone. And number two, I realized it was okay to grieve. And yet, as all of our our family and our friends walked through that with us, and we were so grateful to them, the most comfort we found was actually from our Lord, when he says in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13, that we don't grieve as those who have no hope. Because of Jesus, because of what he's done, no matter what situation approaches us, we know that we have hope. As we've been going through the book of Ephesians in this Headway series, there's a theme that keeps cropping up again and again. And actually, we see it 19 different times mentioned through the book. It may be even more than that if you take a more in-depth look at it. Just a quick glance, you find 19 times it's mentioned in every chapter. And you see the following words, inheritance, heirs, calling, eternal purpose, heavenly places. We see this theme of heaven. And it's not just Ephesians. Throughout the Bible, we see it mentioned again and again. Now, as a little girl, the idea of heaven was scary to me. I thought that it would be constantly singing songs all the time, and I love singing to Jesus, but I didn't know if I wanted to do that nonstop forever, and so what happened is I would just kind of push it out of my mind, and I'm sure you can relate. The concept of eternity, it's vast. It's endless, and so not just as a little girl, but as an adult, it can feel intimidating to think of heaven. And yet we find that God has put in his word different things so that we can know more about what he has planned for us. And it doesn't have to be scary or intimidating. I've been reading this book uh, actually called Heaven by Dr. Randy Alcorn. And what he does is he takes scripture and then he talks about a theology of heaven. He explains what we can take scripturally and then if there are different topics that he doesn't feel like there's enough to go off of, he is very clear about that. So if this is something today that you find interesting, that would be a great resource. However, I want to start by saying Neither Dr. Alcorn or myself are infallible. There is the possibility of being wrong. Only God's word is infallible. 
And so we know that while I'm talking today, if for some reason something strikes you as wrong or it seems different than what you've heard before, please research for yourself. This, the Bible has a lot to say about heaven. And of course, there's only so much we will know this side of eternity. Now, as a little girl, like I was saying, it was, it was scary, but I knew I wanted to go there. I didn't want to go to the alternative. I knew heaven was what I wanted, and hell was not where I wanted to be. I knew that Jesus had died on the cross. He lived a perfect life. He rose again three days later, and because I had accepted him as Lord, understood that I did things wrong and I needed a savior, that I would get to spend eternity with him. So I knew I wanted it, but I just didn't quite feel the excitement about it. So in this book, we're going to start to look at some of the common assumptions about heaven and then see what the Bible has to say. Now, one of the ways he starts here is that often we think that heaven is non-earth. And the truth is, right now, heaven is distinct from earth. But we read in Revelation 21 the following. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. So we see that heaven, God's dwelling place, will one day be on the new earth. And it's not just this guy's idea. We see other theologians that agree with him. Dr. Wayne Grudem says the following. Christians, also, Christians often talk about living with God in heaven forever, writes theologian Wayne Grudem. But, in fact, the biblical teaching is richer than that. It tells us there will be new heavens and a new earth, an entirely renewed creation, and we will live with God there. There will also be a new kind of unification of heaven and earth. There will be a joining of heaven and earth in this new creation. So instead of heaven being distant and separate, we see that in fact, heaven will be coming down as God will be remaking the earth. Dr. Alcorn has this to say about it. The power of Christ's resurrection is enough not only to remake us, but also to remake every inch of the universe. Mountains, rivers, plants, animals, stars, nebulae, quasars, and galaxies. Christ's redemptive work extends resurrection to the far reaches of the universe. This is a stunning affirmation of God's greatness. It should move our hearts to wonder and praise. So we see that heaven, the heaven we will be dwelling in, will eventually be this new earth. Not unfamiliar and otherworldly, but familiar and earthly. It's not going to be foreign. It's going to feel like home, what we were made for. 
going to have the comforts of home with the innovations of an infinitely creative God. If you could imagine that feeling of warmth and like the coziness, uh, for me, the prime example of being cozy would be in the mountains, you know, fog, Great Smoky Mountains, morning, hot coffee or tea, a blanket and a great book, that feeling of this is right. Heaven will be the epitome of that. Now, not only is heaven going to be the new earth, but also often we think that we'll be disembodied spirits floating around, but actually we find that eternally we will have resurrection bodies. Joni Erickson Tata, if you haven't heard of her, she is a woman who has been a voice for the voiceless. She had an accident when she was a young woman and she's paralyzed. And in in the state that she's in, she said the following. Somewhere in my broken, paralyzed body is the seed of what I shall become. The paralysis makes what I am to become all the more grand when you contrast atrophied, useless legs against splendorous, resurrected legs. I'm convinced that if there are mirrors in heaven, and why not, the image I'll see will be unmistakably Joni, although a much better, brighter Joni. And then Dr. Alcorn says this, inside your body, even if it is failing, is the blueprint for your resurrection body. You may not be satisfied with your current body or mind, but you'll be thrilled with your resurrection upgrades. With them, you'll be better able to serve and glorify God and enjoy an eternity of wonders he has prepared for you. Certainly, we've all experienced back pain or neck pain, times that our memory hasn't served us the way we would hope. And we see that God has something much greater and brighter ahead for us, something to look forward to. Instead of heaven being a place where we'll leave our favorite things behind, like I thought when I was younger, in fact, heaven will be where we retain the good, but we find the best ahead. It's not going to be a static place with no time and space. Paul tells us that there are ages to come. Not just one age, but ages, plural, as in there will be different times. This is going to be changing and dynamic. There's not going to be nothing to do with us just floating on the clouds. In fact, there will be a God to worship and serve, a universe to rule, purposeful work to accomplish, and friends to enjoy. Often there's an idea that once we go to heaven, we'll just know everything. In fact, we find that we will have an eternity of learning and discovering. Instead of it being boring and a loss of desire, we're going to find it fascinating and a continuous fulfillment of desire. Now, not sinful desires, but holy, godly desire. Often as well, there's this idea that heaven, we know it's not hell, so it's absence of the terrible, but like I said, as a little girl, I just thought songs all the time. That's what was ahead. But really, in fact, we find that in heaven, it's the presence of the wonderful, everything we desire and nothing we don't. As he closes out this section talking about assumptions, he says the following, 
The Bible portrays life in God's presence and our resurrected bodies and a resurrected universe as so exciting and compelling that even the youngest and healthiest of us should daydream about it. So speaking of daydreaming, we're going to try this. I'm going to read a section of this book where he kind of talks about what heaven might be like. Of course, this is fictional. This is not verbatim from scripture. He's just imagining a little bit of what may be ahead for us. So if you'd like to close your eyes, you can. You don't need to. But just try and imagine this with me. So look out a window. Take a walk. Talk with your friend. Use your God-given skills to paint or draw or build a shed or write a book. But imagine it, all of it, in its original condition. The happy dog with the wagging tail, not the snarling beast beaten and starved. The flowers unwilted, the grass undying, the blue sky without pollution. People smiling and joyful, not angry, depressed, and empty. If you're not in a particularly beautiful place, close your eyes and envision the most beautiful place you've ever been complete with palm trees, raging rivers, jagged mountains, waterfalls, or snowdrifts. Think of friends or family members who love Jesus and are with him now. Picture them with you, walking together in this place. All of you have powerful bodies, stronger than those of an Olympic decathlete. You are laughing, playing, talking, and reminiscing. You reach up to a tree to pick an apple or orange. You take a bite. It's so sweet that it's startling. You've never tasted anything so good. Now you see someone coming toward you. It's Jesus with a big smile on his face. You fall to your knees in worship. He pulls you up and embraces you. At last, you're with the person you were made for and the place you were made to be. Everywhere you go, there will be new people and places to enjoy, new things to discover. What's that you smell? A feast, a party's ahead, and you're invited. There's exploration and work to be done, and you can't wait to get started. You can open your eyes. So you might be thinking, that's great. But why does this matter? This is for the future. That's not right now. In fact, we see an answer to that in Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. It says the following. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So we see it's biblical to seek the things that are above, to seek heaven. So seeking heaven helps us to develop an eternal perspective. I'm sure you've heard the phrase, someone who has their head in the clouds, but they're not doing any earthly good. So how do we deal with that? We see C.S. Lewis has a response to this, and it's much better than anything I could come up with, so I'm going to read it to you. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set 
on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. As Christians, we know that the time we have here is so short and that an eternity awaits us. And in light of that, it changes how we handle our day-to-day situations. All of a sudden, things not going our way should be approached a little bit differently. We know there's an eternity around the corner. Atheists do not get to have the ethic of knowing that heaven is real and that it exists. To an atheist, all there is is the material, what is here and now. And eventually, that would lead to the idea that you should just get whatever you can while you can because life is short. So it becomes all about you. But like I said, as Christians, we find instead of it being all about us, it is all about Jesus. And we want to use every bit of our energy and our time because we know that what we have here is short. We want our neighbors, our friends to know about the eternity awaiting them because we know that the time we have to share with them is short. Along with this eternal perspective, we also find that we get to have an eternal peace. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13 and 14, we see the following. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Scripture tells us that we have been brought near in Christ when we accept him, that he is our peace. I'm sure you've noticed the world around us has been churning in the last year. There's so much anxiety. There's a global pandemic. It's an election year on top of everything else. And there's this constant stream of information that we have to process and deal with. This is a high anxiety time. And yet we find a different answer for this in scripture. We see that Christ himself is our peace. No matter who wins the election this week, Jesus is still on his throne. We know that he is constant. We know that there is a place to come where our tears will be wiped away, that our peace is waiting. But it's not just a peace for the future. It's a peace for now. We can rely on Christ as we face different situations. Along with an eternal peace, we also find eternal hope. In Ephesians 1, verse 18 and 19, this is what Paul says. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? according to the working of his great 
might. It goes on to say that Jesus has been given dominion over heaven, over earth. And we know that as Christians, we are called to hope. We have a hope in an eternity that awaits us. Eternity with Christ, where there is perfect justice, perfect peace. There is endless mercy. And we know that he will wipe away every tear. As I mentioned our miscarriage at the beginning of the message, Tanner and I uh, believe scripturally that we will see that baby one day. And so we named the baby Genesis, and we actually prayed for the baby yesterday, um, just thanking God for the chance to even be pregnant. And he's so good to us, because while those who don't have Jesus don't have hope, they don't have peace, we get to have an eternal perspective and a hope that cannot be shaken. When we lose our loved ones, our friends, our family, that have chosen Christ, we know that it's not the end. We get to see them again. How beautiful is our Savior that goodbye doesn't have to be permanent. As my dad has been sharing through this series, you can't make headway if you don't have a takeaway. So some ways to practically apply this message in developing an eternal perspective, Dr. Alcorn asks the question, what have you been doing daily to set your mind on things above, to seek heaven? What should you do differently? So we see this challenge to start to focus more on what's to come. A great way to do that would be writing scripture on a note card, put it on your mirror, put it on your dashboard. Let that remind you to think of what is to come. Another idea would be to ask your coworkers or your friends, your neighbors, what they think about heaven. I found some breakthrough in faith conversations with some of my coworkers that I had been having a hard time bringing up the topic of Jesus with. In fact, heaven is a little bit less confrontational and just interesting for a discussion, and so it feels non-threatening to talk about. That would be a good way to break the ice. Another application would be to talk with your kids about heaven and Jesus. In fact, we can't just tell our kids about heaven if we haven't built the theology of why they would be going there. In our world today, they want to tell us that you go to heaven if you've been a good person, if you've lived life to the best of your ability, that your future is secure. But this is not what we find in Scripture. Scripture tells us that heaven is for those who have chosen Christ. When we accept him as our Savior and our Lord, when we know that he lived a perfect life, died on the cross, rose again three days later, and we say that he is Lord, we know that we've sinned and that we need him, that is when heaven becomes a reality. Tanner and I have been reading this book with our son Peter, who we know is not getting much out of it at this point. This is more for us to go ahead and, and vet it, make sure we agree with its ideas, and just get in the habit of reading it together. 
and it's called Everything a Child Should Know About God. If you're interested, I'd be happy to show it to you. It's got really great illustrations, short sections, and it helps break down some of the confusing parts of our faith and make it a little more digestible, easier to understand. And there's a good question at the end just to check for comprehension. If you don't have kids, talk to your friends' kids about Jesus or your grandkids or your great-grandkids. It's important that we start sharing our faith with the next generation. And lastly, a way to apply this message would be to begin to change the way that we share Christ with others. Often, we're motivated more so from the point of, we don't want you to go to hell. Jesus has a better way, and that's not bad. Christ talks about hell. Hell is a reality. We don't want people to go there. But as Christians, we have a different motivation we can also use. We don't just have to say, we don't want you to go to hell. We get to say, we want you to experience heaven. God, in his mercy and his grace and his love for us, has created a place that is beyond our wildest imagination, and we get to take part in it but only if we've accepted him. And so we get to share this joy with the people who don't know Christ. It's not just we don't want you to go somewhere. It's we want you to experience heaven. If you can imagine somebody telling you about a restaurant and they share that the food was undercooked, it smelled terrible, the prices were crazy, you're not going to want to go, right? Well, in the same token, if somebody comes up to you while you're trying to decide where you want to go after church for lunch, and they say, wow, I had the best meal of my life. The fried chicken was incredible. They tell you that the prices were great. The portion sizes were excellent. The entertainment, it was amazing. You're going to want to go. You're going to be excited to taste the fried chicken. Don't we know that God has something amazing in store for us? If sharing Jesus has become something that's a chore, then I think we're missing it. We have the greatest news to offer, and it's Christ. It's that he has heaven waiting for us. And when the world starts to look scary or we start to feel anxious, understanding what is waiting changes everything. He is our peace. He's given us hope. And he has given us eternity with him. What could be better? Let's pray. God, you're so good. You're so faithful. We thank you that we don't have to be afraid of what's to come, but that instead we get to be excited to spend eternity with you. Lord, for those of us who have lost loved ones, who have experienced miscarriage, who feel heartbroken, God, I pray for comfort, for peace. I pray that you would remind your people that you're here, that you love us, that you have the best ahead. We love you, God. It's in your name we pray. Amen.